My name is Era, and I'm the host of the Tamil Creator Podcast. I chat with creators from all over the world to share their stories and discuss hot topics in a way that I hope inspires, educates, and entertains you. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Tamil Creator. I'm your host, and today I have a special guest on the podcast. His name is Prakash Chandran. If his last name sounds familiar, he is the older and cooler brother of Sashi. I'm just joking, Sashi. <laughs> and he is the co-CEO of Zeno, uh, the fastest no-code backend development platform, uh, just meaning you can kind of create MVPs and get to product market fit in record time. In his past life, he was also the head of enterprise UX at Google, was there for about eight years. And before that, he was, uh, and around the same time he was found, he founded Zabinet, which is cabinet with a Z. And it's a platform to make it easy for consumers to recommend a business to their friends one click after they purchase. And fun fact, when you hear his voice, you'll know what I mean. He's also a podcast host for Radio MD, where he interviews doctors around the country on how they can help others. So Prakash, uh, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks so much for having me. Let me make a correction. My sister, Sashi Chandran, is better than me in every single way. And I know that uh, she <laughs> is my shiro and she's fantastic. So I'm just trying to follow in her footsteps. She's amazing. <laughs> I was just joking. She obviously knows that. Um, you know, Prakash, uh, I read your like bio. It's amazing. I- I'm very fascinated by the no co- code movement, which is why I really found what you're doing with your company amazing. So, but for me, when I talk to people, my thing is, it starts at the beginning. I feel like childhood, and now that I'm a parent, I feel like how you're raised definitely has some impact on kind of the decisions you make down the line. So, yeah. you know, why don't we start at the beginning? I've heard Sashi's version of this. So, tell us about kind of your family and upbringing, and like how that played in the part, how that played a part in kind of the decisions you made later in life. Yeah. So, um, you know, we were, uh, I was born in LA and we moved to Malibu fairly early on when I was around six years old. And uh, so I, I spent my time, uh, you know, kind of growing up in Malibu as kind of the only uh, really Asian kid uh, at Malibu High School uh, before my sister uh, joined. Um, but, you know, I think that my parents, uh, kind of had the traditional or I had the traditional Asian upbringing, Asian parents. My mother is Chinese. My dad is Sri Lankan. Uh, we had the uh, traditional Asian upbringing uh, within Malibu, California. So you can imagine that interesting dichotomy there, uh, uh, like kind of two worlds colliding. Um, but, you know, I think that it was really good experience for both my sister and I to have those two perspectives, you know, have this grounded, very culture rich uh, upbringing at home, and then just all of the nuances that r- growing up in Malibu, California um, brings. And so I think that, you know, um, obviously, this is a, a broad answer, but my parents have always been risk takers as immigrants into this country. They have always uh, taken risks. They've uh, started businesses, side hustles and things of that nature. And my sister and I got to kind of uh, experience that. And I think learn from that. And I think that was kind of ingrained in our DNA from a very early age. And that's why we take risks on our own today, I believe. That's great. And what's your parents' secret? I mean, they raised two amazing kids, uh, both on kind of entrepreneurial paths. I guess you kind of mentioned some of it already makes sense with the risk-taking yeah. appetite, but what's their secret? Um, I want to know as a parent as well. So, (laughs) you know, I think it's something I think about as a parent as well, but I think that there is this like notion of like 
let's just call it self-reliance and learning to make money at a very early age. And they very much instilled that in us. Like, you know, I got a, so my mother uh, started a, a little crystal shop at a swap meet when I was, you know, maybe 13 years old, 12 or 13 years old. And I used to go with her every weekend uh, to set the shop up. And she was very much like a solopreneur uh, trying to build that business off of the ground. And then while I was there, there were other shops at the swap meet. And there was this software shop. You know, this is when like floppy disks were the way that you, you know, installed programs. I used to spend all my time at this software shop. So my mom went over to the owner and said, hey, my son's always here. You might as well hire him. And I was like 12 years old at the time. And so, you know, imagine having that type of training where I'm working in a swap meet where people are trying to negotiate. I have to, you know, manage relationships, manage money, my relationship with money. I learned how to buy things. Um, I think that had a lot to do with it. So my parents basically instilled in us very early on the importance of making money, the importance of money itself. Um, and I think that that really has helped. And that's something that I think about a lot, you know, as I'm raising my children, self-reliance, financial literacy, I think builds confidence and giving them the ability to do that as early as possible is something that I think that I will instill in my children. It's very fascinating because as you're speaking, I mean, I've had this conversation before, but when my when I was younger, I was the, I'm the oldest of four. So when my parents were kind of navigating their new immigrants, their English wasn't as great. As the oldest, I was kind of the default person to kind of translate different documents. So I learned about mortgages and money and all these things very early on, which back then I was like, I, I kind of hated it because I felt like all this responsibility I didn't want. But yeah. now compared to some of my peers that don't know things about financial literacy, just certain things that I just take for granted because of that experience, I'm very grateful. I mean, I obviously I think as you grow older with experience, you know, I especially feel very grateful to my parents and just kind of how I was brought up, whether, you know, we didn't have much, which I think is a common immigrant experience, but just kind of everything yeah. they, they taught you that you described. Um, yeah, you know, and I think that that kind of the, the financial literacy piece, I think is so important because it is something that is not taught in our schools, you know, and I think that um, the earlier you can learn the value of money around compounding interest and just the way the money system works, um, I think the more ahead in life you'll be. And, uh, you know, similar to your story, one thing I think that really helped is even though we lived in Malibu, uh, people that know Malibu know it as a very rich city, which it is. But that was my dad's aspiration, which he had to really reach. He had to really ex overextend himself to put us there because he wanted a better life for us. Um, so I always say that we were, <clears throat> we were, you know, poor kids living in Malibu. Like we <laughs> didn't, you know, my, my friends had private jets and all of these things, but we didn't, we really were very cash poor. So we had this like humble home. Um, but my dad was in the meantime, kind of building up the foundation to give us that good lifestyle and overextending himself which I think is also part of why my sister and I um, have the hustle that we do today. And you talked about compound interest. I could talk about that for days. I feel like it's such a, I apply that to everything, not just money, but like habits or like just anything. Oh, absolutely. Improve on. I feel like people, I don't want to generalize, but I feel like in this day and culture, instant gratification is kind of the norm. And I, I love and just, I admire people and I try to be someone that just, enjoys this long, treacherous journey of just getting better and just enjoying that journey. So I love yeah. what you said. 
Um, yeah, one of my favorite quotes or phrases, and I don't even know who said this, but I've like really adopted it as my own, is that things that matter take time. And I think people don't realize the amount of effort that anything worthwhile takes, whether that be building a business, whether that be working on yourself physically, whether that be the compound interest and time value of money, like all of these things don't happen overnight. There really are no shortcuts in life. And the sooner you realize that, the sooner you will make time your ally and utilize it in the best way possible. Awesome. Yeah. And it, you know, it, it's amazing what your parents have done for you guys. I mean, I, I like to kind of jump right into your work experience as well. You know, um, you were at Google for eight years. I'm very curious about that because I guess my background is I, I did like a stint at IBM for like a year or two, but then, yeah. you know, I guess I decided very quickly it wasn't for me. Um, and you seem to have also an entrepreneurial background. So I'm curious what made you number one decide to work at Google? Uh, I'm curious about the interview process, and then why did you why did you decide to stay for eight years before kind of going more into the entrepreneurial path? Yeah, I mean, so uh, quite honestly, after school, you know, or I guess when I was in college, I had started kind of this web development uh, agency with a friend. And so while I went to school for business, all of my practical experience was in like, you know, web design and so, and kind of front end engineering. And so afterwards, um, I had a couple different options and I ended up joining this a company called Picasa, right? And that as a designer. So basically, for those of you that don't know, Picasa basically is a photo organization uh, software that was for the desktop. And so after, you know, six to eight months of me working there, Google acquired the company. And so I was the last employee brought in before Google um, came to the table. And um, it was one of these things where I didn't decide to work at Google. I was like blessed to have been able to have that backdoor side door entry in. Now I tell people, you know, I still went through six rounds of interviews. I definitely still had to know my stuff in order to get there. But me going from graduating school to eight months at Picasa to then Google was this wild roller coaster ride for me. And then I spent really the next um, eight years learning as much uh, as I could from brilliant people. You know, when I first got to Google, you know, I was a visual designer when I uh when I when Google first acquired Picasa, but I learned about user centered and user experience design. And I had a lot of imposter syndrome around like, I definitely don't deserve to be here. There's people that are way smarter than me. So that journey was really me learning as much as possible about um, about design, user-centered design, about management. I eventually managed teams. Um, and then I eventually, when I felt like I was ready, uh, then I, I left to take the entrepreneurial leap myself. And was there, I guess, anything particular that Google did to help you make the decision easier to stay versus leave? Because I feel like if you have this entrepreneurial pull or like um, nature, you know, you, you're always wanting to have that itch to leave and, you know, do something, but you stayed there for eight years. So like, what was their secret as a company? Yeah, you know, I think that, um, well, there's a couple of things. They pay you, they really overpay you. Like they, you should not be making as much money as you're making uh, at that age. And so, and, and I genuinely am totally okay saying that. It's one of these things where um, I kind of was like, okay, well, I'm making a lot of money. It's really hard for me to leave this. But I was also learning a lot. Um, but I had this, I always had this motivation to try to climb the ladder and get as high as I possibly could get. 
And uh, within Google, they if you're if you are on that track, it's basically a self promotion culture. They're almost training you to leave eventually because at the time that I left, I was kind of getting into the executive territory, and the question became, okay, well, if I'm going to be working this many hours. Is it going to be aligned with Google's mission of organizing the world's information and making it universally accessible and useful? See, that's like drilled into my head. <laughs> um, is it going to be that? Or am I going to be uh, taking those cycles and doing something else on my own? And ultimately, I decided uh, to take that latter path. But it was not easy, again, because the compensation was so good because I was in this comfortable space and because there was still room to grow kind of upward mobility within Google. So. You know, Google is very unique and you have to understand that the time that I joined the company, like it was like, you know, 2003, 2004, where Google was the best company to work at in the world bar none. Like I would go into airports traveling internationally and just having a Google bag, I was treated like a celebrity. So it's very difficult to leave that, uh, that comfort. And so um, I think it was partly like, Number one, yes, I needed to learn and kind of gain my own confidence to leave uh, that that comfortable space. Um, but yeah, the, the other part of it, it was just like, you know, paid really well and was just really nice. And so wanted to stay there as long as possible. What, what was your life circumstances when you decided to leave? Like at that point, were you like married and did you have kids or like what was your situation like at that time? Uh, no, I wasn't married, didn't have any kids. Um, you know, I, I uh, had already kind of like ticked the box on a number of things that I wanted to do in my life. Like I had, I was living, you know, very comfortably. I had built a home in the Bay Area and, um, and yeah, I was kind of like a bachelor. And so um, when I wanted to embark on this journey of entrepreneurship, um, I think that for me, I wanted to first take a break, which I ended up doing as soon as I left. I, I moved to the south of France for almost a year. Um, and then afterwards, just start on my own journey. So that's kind of the, uh, it was like the most comfortable way to leave possible. Like it was just like, okay, well, I could just keep, you know, keep keeping on. Um, and again, going the executive route within Google, or I can try something for myself. This episode is sponsored by Nobody. That's right, nobody. So if you could be kind enough to hit that subscribe button, that would mean a lot to me. Yeah, I, I love what you did there because I'm reflecting on my journey where I started like right up, right up from school. I went to jump right into like trying to build something. And the realization I'm having now, and I, I mean, everything happens for a reason is if I were to go back in time, I would work at one of, you know, at uh, one of the fang companies, number one, to learn, number one, to set myself up financially. And then, you know, then start taking a risk because I feel like I probably took much longer down this path than I would have done that way. I, I mean, obviously, it's like hindsight's twenty twenty, but um, that's like, you know, I, I talked to people that work at Airbnb and, you know, they did really well when they IPO'd and, and now they're trying other things. And I was like, oh, man, that would have been a really cool path. But again, it, I know everything happens for a reason. Yeah. You know, I think every, everyone has like, arguably you needed to do things exactly the way you did to learn those lessons and to really appreciate the value of the foundation you built to get to where you are now. And so, you know, I think I've definitely had spent a lot of time in regret, especially uh, through the startup phases, which I'm sure we'll discuss. Um, but I just, you know, it kind of like, you know, you're forged by fire and you learn all of these things and now you're better positioned uh, to, you know, take on the world and all the 
new problem sets that are ahead of you. So I'm, I'm very happy for the way things went. So you're, you know, you spent a year away in the south of France. You needed a break after, you know, working hard at Google for a number of years. So how did you get the idea of Zabinet? Like, um, why, why was that the idea you want to focus on or try? Yeah, so I'm like big into trying to like organize things. And um, I think that I had believed that at, at the time we had like Facebook and a lot of social networks that were gaining a lot of notoriety and traction. And I was like, well, we have all these relationships with the things that we own, but no one centralized place to organize them, right? And so I was like, oh, I'm gonna build that. It's like basically the digital filing cabinet. And um, I, I was super passionate about trying to solve uh, that problem or the problem that I thought existed at the time. And that is why I decided to embark on uh, the adventure of Zabinet. And what was the end result of that? Like, I know you spent a few years on that project. Um, why yeah, I, I, I basically, I, I basically call Zabinet like three and a half to four years of me getting the crap kicked out of myself. <laughs> um, and there's a couple reasons for that. The first is that I very quickly learned that I was not as awesome as I thought I was. Like at Google, you're getting paid a lot of money. You're climbing up the ranks. There's like a rubric to basically um, upskill and level yourself up there. And then when you go to like having zero customers and zero users, and you're trying to go from zero to one without Google brand backing or anything, you're like, wow, this is what the real world is like. <laughs> and um, I had to very quickly learn that, okay, number one, the uh, solution that I had was really looking for a problem. There was really no market of people that were looking to have relationships with the things that they own. So I had to very quickly learn, okay, well, how am I going to transition and, um, you know, basically turn this into a business? And so I learned so much about things not to do. I learned about fundraising, about learning how to be clear and concise with the value proposition that I was trying to go after. So like I said, it was a very formative three and a half to four years. Uh, ultimately, I like sold Zabinet for parts, um, but it was, the, it was it, that was my MBA, really. That really going through that experience was my MBA and kind of set me up for what I'm doing today. And that's a great MBA. I feel like that's probably way cheaper than actually doing an MBA. I think that's probably true. Yeah, I think that's probably true. <laughs> and you mentioned you sold the um, Zabinet for parts. How did you go about selling it? Or like, did somebody approach you? Like, what was that process like? No. So, um, so basically I had pivoted Zabinet to the point where I was selling to, uh, you know, it, it became basically a referral tool for fitness studios, which is obviously so vastly different than where I started. Uh, but basically, I had this point of sale solution. I had this integration with MindBody, which is a very well-known point of sale solution for fitness studios. So I turned that like referral recommendation thing into uh, into that. And so there was only a few companies that were in that space, and we were trying to like, you know, fight for market share. So uh, my biggest competitor at the time that had just taken uh, a yoga studio chain away from me. I was like, you know, I'm just going to contact their founder and, um, and try to make something happen. And so that's basically what happened. It was like, I was ready to get out. Uh, and that was a very hard decision to come to, by the way. Like this is an existential thing where your first idea, you're so tied to it emotionally, you know, fiscally, there's so many uh, moving pieces there. But eventually I came to that conclusion, contacted the founder. We worked over the course of a couple months to get things done. So that's how it worked. It makes sense now, I guess, why you moved from the Bay Area to LA, because I guess LA is home. 
Is that what made you kind of decide to come back to LA and start Zeno or is there a different reason? No. So, um, you know, I had originally moved back to LA. Um, I think there, it was like twofold. One is like the cost of engineering at the time when I was, I, cause I moved back during Zabinet. It was like far cheaper in LA. That's not the same anymore, but it was at the time. And then the second piece is that I could live with my parents, right. While I was doing that to save money and to truly bootstrap and so that's the reason why I had originally moved back to, um, to LA, but subsequently I actually have, I moved to Santa Barbara. Then during COVID, I moved, uh, to Lake Arrowhead, which is by big bear, um, you know, to get support with, uh, with my young one. And now I actually, as of this past weekend, moved to San Luis Obispo. So while I'm running Xano, I am doing it remotely. And I obviously visit from time to time, but I live in San Luis Obispo right now. Ah, got it. Okay. I was going to ask you about, because I, I have a friend who also had a startup, he sold it, um, and he lives in LA as well. And uh, I didn't even know this term until he, he kept talking about it. But um, I don't know if you know much about it, but like the Silicon Beach kind of yeah, nickname Beach, for yeah. LA. Um, yeah. You know, you were in obviously Silicon Valley for a while. What what was the vibe difference? Or like, do you see major differences between the two ecosystems? Yeah, definitely. You know, I think that uh, certainly the ecosystem of Silicon Valley is uh, felt a little bit more cutthroat and uh, a little bit more, you know, go, go. Whereas LA, I think that at least at the time that I was there for Zabinet, you know, it was a little bit more exciting. I think that it was just more exciting that there was a concentration of people in tech within the LA scene and we were all finding each other, right? And so everyone was there to help one another and um, it, it just wasn't necessarily as established as uh, it previously was in Silicon Valley. Now LA, I think, is more known for this mix of like media and tech, right? And so I think you kind of have Hollywood, um, you know, the media companies all integrated with tech and that's kind of the scene that exists there today. Um, and so, you know, I think the Silicon Beach label is largely because a lot of the, uh, the tech companies, um, you know, they wanted to be by the water. I mean, who wouldn't want to be right? So Venice beach, um, a lot of the, like, you know, YouTube snap, um, a lot of other companies would just all kind of be within the Venice area. And then that's just kind of how it, how it sparked up. Got it. So how did the idea come for Zeno? Um, I kind of have a sense of this now that, you know, I, I, you know, looking at your background with your design focus, but, you know, how did you come up with the idea? How did you come up with the name? Um, and yeah, the, the, how did the team come together as well? Yeah. And so uh, Zeno actually originally was not my idea personally. So I, um, you know, I grew up with um, a friend named Sean and we like met each other when we were like 12. And we, he's the one that I started like the web development agency with. And when we left, he was at Google with me and we both, we uh, parted ways. So I went the startup entrepreneur route. He went the development agency route with um, another friend, Jack, right? He's our other co-founder in Zeno. So basically at the development agency, they were building hundreds of different projects that you kind of noticed a pattern. You're building the same thing over and over. So he's like, look, especially for the backend portion of it, how can we basically try to make this faster, build an internal tool that will make this faster so we can take on more projects without having to scale the team? So the first version of Xano, like the command line version, was born almost 10 years ago. And then it just had kept iterating and iterating. And about two and a half to three years ago, I saw this happening. And I also saw kind of like 
the arc of this no-code movement that was happening. And I went over to Sean and Jack and I said, look, I think that there is something here to service kind of the backend piece of this with Xano and we can turn this into a no-code tool. So um, we basically decided to team up and make it from an internal tool and productize it and make it into a service. And so that's kind of how it came to be. And then in terms of the name Xano, you know, we wanted um, a, a name that was four letters that was unique, like we could grow into the name and, and the branding, right? Um, and also, as a, you know, as a, as a side note, uh, Sean called his grandmother Nano. And so it was <laughs> something that it just kind of lined up on, on a lot of different ways. And we were able to get to get the name. And, and now it's something that we're so glad we have. Like a lot of people think it's the cool name. And, um, and it, yeah, it's very unique. That's brilliant. Um, I would have never thought of the, because like the agency problem is in order to grow revenue, you need to grow headcount, which comes with its own challenges. So yep. growing it through technology, that's brilliant. Um, so is the agency still around? Is it like still using the product you guys developed that productized and moved it away from the company or? How's yeah, it's, it's very much in maintenance mode. There are still some clients that exist, but no new clients. Like most of all, all the effort is now focused on Xano as a productized uh, service and growing that. Because a lot of agencies have tried this in the past where they've come up with products based on working with clients and then try to productize it, but yeah. then realize their competent, core competency is not that. And then ultimately yeah. they fail at both. So it's amazing that you guys were able to make that transition from agency into a product company. Yeah, you know, and it's not easy. It's, it's one of these things where we took it very seriously. And actually, Xano as a product was completely re-engineered, right? Um, because it's one thing, and I think this is the mistake that a lot of agencies make. They'll slap a CRM to the existing uh, internal tool, and they don't think about the infrastructure or what it takes to actually build a scalable, um, you know, SaaS product. Um, and so we, we very much knew we didn't want to step on that uh, landmine. So we started from the ground up. And then, um, you know, from my perspective, I did all of the design and just really wanted to make it as accessible as possible to people. And that's, that's obviously a journey in itself, but we were very thoughtful. So it was like a year of just doing that before we opened our doors. And that was in January 2021 when we uh, opened our doors live to the public. And did you guys continue to stay bootstrapped or did you guys decide to fundraise or do you have plans to fundraise? So we raised a very, very small friends and family round um, from like truly like uncles and aunties and friends. Um, and then uh, from there, we basically, none of, all of us don't take salaries. So we kind of consult on the side to keep things going. We, we reinvest everything into the business. So right now we're not capital constrained. I think we will raise money eventually. Uh, but right now we're basically trying to grow as sustainably as possible and just kind of get that semblance of repeatability before we invest money uh, or kind of take that injection of money uh, from investors. What are your thoughts on bootstrapping versus fundraising? Are you, do you have, are you in favor of one or the other or is it more situational for you? You know, I think that it really depends on the type of business that the founders of a company want to grow. So the nice thing about bootstrapping um, is I think that over time, you know, things that, that, that matter to take time, over time, if you can get the business fundamentals right, then you can build a fantastic business for you and, and a couple founders. Um, I think that there is a time and place for venture or for um, 
for taking in money. Um, and that's kind of when you figured out a machine or a pattern that works really well, and you want to scale that. Now, I think that the issue is a lot of people don't realize what they're signing up to when they take on venture money or when they raise money. And that's where the stress comes in. I think that if you understand how the pattern works and the metrics you need to hit, then it's okay. So I really, um, you know, at the end of the day, it's a very personal decision. I think at, at the beginning, we wanted to, to bootstrap it, um, you know, indefinitely. And we, we, may, we may still, like this friends and family round was super small, uh, but my sense is that um, I think for where we want to take the company and for what our aspirations for it, we're going to need um, fund, to fundraise. That's a great answer. I mean, you almost convinced me. I'm very pro. I didn't want to give you it, but I'm very pro bootstrapping. Yeah. Um, initially in my career, I was um, more pro fundraising, but yeah. I guess just through experiences, uh, I've been, I push, I'm, I'm more along the bootstrapping, but your answer was. Well, I, really but I actually think, so there's like a, there's a spectrum here. Like, I think that people tend to raise money far too early right? They don't know any of the fundamentals of their business. They have an established product market fit or market product fit, product channel fit. Like there's so many elements that need to be uh, ticked off, which you can do without raising money and you should do without raising money. That way, when you do raise money, it's more favorable terms. The investors will feel more confident and you'll feel more confident about how you deploy the capital when you get it. And so I think that that was a mistake again that I made at Zabinet, you know, raising money way too quickly. Um, when I just I didn't know anything, I just thought, oh, well, you raise money, that's how you survive. Um, but you know, constraint is a beautiful thing. You will figure out a way um, to keep the company going if you want, if you want to, and work on the business fundamentals, and then do it kind of in the most eyes wide open way possible when you're ready to raise. And I think the thing about fundraising, I think it's another reason why I'm a, I was against it. Um, is it's not even logical. It's more so I feel like there's so much hype and coverage given to companies that fundraise versus there's all these great companies out there that are bootstrapping and doing really cool things that don't get the same kind of coverage or positive positive views. Um, but I, I see like any company that raises money, it's like celebrated, but any company that's bootstrapped and like, you know, they're making a few million dollars and that's amazing for like a few founders to like find product. Oh yeah. Cool. Did you know that every time you left a 5 out of 5 review for this podcast, a Tamil parent lets their child pursue a career in the creative arts? Okay, that's probably not true, but if there's a chance that it is, do you really want to jinx it? Leave a review. Do it for the young creative in you. I th also think that it's, non it's not binary anymore in the sense that I think bootstrapping and building sustainable companies is becoming more and more, I think, respected these days rather than the grow at all cost mentality that previously venture had advertised. So I think raising from people with that same philosophy is important. Like I, I always like Rob Walling and Tiny Seed. Um, you know, they kind of have this mixed model where they will inject some cash into your company, give you a year accelerator, and they don't have any, any expectations around how fast you need to get to the next round. Like you can just build a sustainable company. They even have basically a, um, you know, a, a payout like per share uh, strategy to where you don't have to have an exit for everyone to benefit. So there are different models these days where everyone can benefit and, and philosophically you can build a sustainable company without that pressure. That sounds great. I've never heard of that kind of thinking. So that's, it's good to know that there's new models evolving as you know, Absolutely. people's thoughts. Yep. That's great. Yeah. Um, 
where do you see, like, what does success look like for you and the team at Zeno, you know, three, five years from now? Like, where do you want the company to go? Yeah, so, you know, I think that, um, I'll, I'll just say, well, let me just step back and kind of give a primer of like the space of software development. So software development typically has two components. There's the front end, which is what the user sees, and then the back end, which is all the business logic that handles things. And I always give the example of Amazon's one-click buy. So on the front end, you might see a button that says buy now, right? Easy enough. But on the back end, what needs to happen, right? Like you need to check that the credit card is valid. You need to check where the person lives. Is the distribution center closest? Does it have that thing in inventory? Um, it needs to coordinate all of the carriers. You know, there might be 40 or 50 things that happen in the back end. And that has always traditionally been done by a team of engineers, right? So Xano, really, our goal is to try to make that kind of complexity and that those types of systems accessible to more people. If you look at the world at large, um, you know, the billions of people on this planet, there are about 20 million uh, developers that develop software for all of us. By, you know, by, the, by comparison, 10, 20 million is such a small amount of people. So the more you can democratize access to give people the ability to build these complex systems in an easy way, I think it's going to be a boon for, uh, for humanity and for the world. And so I think that in the next three to five years, if we can expand the surface area of people building comprehensive, complex applications, I think we'll have done our job. Do you think the nature of education will change as these no like no code code no code uh, uh, platforms like yourself and others I'm sure that are building in this space as they get really good and you have you know anybody that without even a, a development background can start developing these you know great products yeah do you think there would be a requirement for like a computer science or computer engineering you know degree anymore or like program at a university or college I think it's going to be different so right now. Um... You know, I think I, the word no code is just kind of the word right now, but eventually you're just going to build products using these tools and they're not, it's not going to be code, code versus no code. So I think that you may not necessarily learn uh, over time, and I'm not saying anytime soon, maybe in the next like five to 10 years, but you may not necessarily learn a programming language or syntax, but you will learn the logic because that, you know, engineering thinking or thinking in such a way where you're problem solving around like if then else statements um, is still a very valuable tool. And no matter what type of no code tool you're using, there are inefficient ways to build things, right? Um, and so I think the more engineering mindset, the, the, the schooling is going to be around how do you problem solve in kind of this logic based way, rather than how do you problem solve in the constraints of this specific programming language with semicolons and, um, you know, strongly typed things, you know, like, I think it's going to change the way that, uh, and I think in that way, it, it's going to open the opportunity for more people to be educated because they won't have, you won't have to worry about the syntax, just the logic piece of it. See, I wish what you described, because I did engineering and what drove me away from kind of doing development into like solving people versus like code was all the, the nuances of like setting up your environment and doing all this other stuff, which I hated doing and then figuring yeah. out if it was a simplified where I can just problem solve and build a product using problem solving skills versus just thinking about all these syntax, I think I would have stuck longer with 
down that path. Oh. Yeah, definitely. You know, I think that people don't sign up, even when people uh, start a company, a software business, they're not thinking about server environments, about orchestration, about scaling. They're not thinking about any of those things. They're saying, I'm trying to build a project uh, that solves some problems, and I need to be able to articulate that uh, in whatever tool you give me, right? And previously, up to five years ago, the only tool was great here's Visual Studio Code or Sublime or whatever text editor you use um, or IDE, and you would just program everything, compile it and push it up to the servers. And that was like basically just a non-starter for so many people. And so the whole goal is like, in making it more accessible to people, people don't have to worry about those hurdles anymore. Let, let us take care of that. You worry about the business logic problems and solving problems in the world. I love it. We kind of briefly talked about this, but What's a failure that you've experienced, like a major one or, you know, like a really like life-changing one that you've learned in the last three to five years? And what was that lesson that you gleaned from that failure? And I don't like that word, but we'll call it learning lesson if you want to call it that. Yeah, I mean, there are so many. Where, where should I even begin? Um, you know, I think that... I think that sometimes, you know, becoming an entrepreneur is such an attractive um, or a founder is such an attractive goal that we try to just come up with an idea and pursue it for the sake of pursuing it, just to say that we're founders and entrepreneurs. And I think that Zabinet very much was, um, was that for me where I just wanted so bad to start my own business that I didn't really think through uh, the dynamics of like, if I was solving a real problem in the world. And so I think that there's, there's, a couple, there's a couple different pieces to that. One is I rushed into starting a business when I shouldn't have. Number two is I raised money so quickly because I just assumed that that was how the way things were done rather than understanding true business fundamentals. Um, and the third piece of it was I didn't really align it with who I was as a per like my purpose, right? I think all of us are given unique superpowers as individuals, right? Uh, I'm a spiritual person, so I believe it comes from a higher power, but other people may not believe that. But all of us are generally have these unique set of abilities, and we have kind of things that make us happy, right? That we want to do in the world. And I think that really being thoughtful around, well, what is my purpose? Why am I doing this? Is it solving a real problem? And how do I, how do I, like, what is the seed of this solution that I'm putting together? That's something that I just wish that I would have done sooner. And so, you know, I think that um, it's hard to point to like, there's this one thing that I made a mistake and I learned from, but I think just my whole journey with Zabin, it was that for me. Now, arguably, I would not have had this clarity and uh, this peace of mind if I hadn't gone through it. So that's why I think, as you've correctly said, it's not necessarily a mistake, but that is something that I, I always think through now uh, that I've really learned from my time with, with Zabin, it because, um, because yeah, I think it's really formulated the way I think through things now. As you know, as like a, a founder, uh, current founder and you're also a father as well like how do you balance the demands between the two because you know I, now that I have kids I, I think of startups as children or kids when you think about it so yeah like and they're both very demanding so how do you balance between the two not well my friend 
not well. Um, you know, I think that, um, well, first of all, I have to give credit to my wife. She is uh, a superstar and we have the more traditional arrangement where she's the stay at home mom and I'm out there kind of, you know, trying to make the money. So if that weren't the case, I think this would be much harder for me. Um, that being said, I think that I uh, very early on have tried to make the decision to at least, um, you know, in, in, in the midst of everything that I'm creating, I want to be a present father that is there for my children. I, I don't want my, my children to go a day without seeing me and spending time with me. So what does that mean? That means that I have to get the things done that I need to get done, certainly before six, so I can get home, make sure that they have a bath, make sure I can read bedtime stories to them, um, and and just give them that little bit, even if it makes my life harder. Um, now, I'm not necessarily sure that that's the right thing. I could work forever, and I, I definitely do miss out on things because I, I don't work later, but that's kind of my approach to the things for now. And so you know, um, just like you uh, are, I'm, I'm figuring it out, but that's the one kind of thing that I really try to do every single day. And I try to make sure not to work on the weekends, uh, if at all possible. I try to just spend time with them and also give my wife some reprieve. That's great. And I think you just kind of hit the nail on the head, which is something I'm learning as well, just to be present in the moments you're around your kids versus, you know, being on the phone or being distracted, even if it's five minutes. If it's a present five minutes, it means more than a distracted one hour. So yeah, and that's that's been difficult for me because, you know, as someone that is in tech, I, and also I'm like a super extrovert by nature, um, it's been difficult because I have not been as responsive to my friends or I'm not just on my phone and, um, you know, all the time. I, I miss things all the time because I would rather not pick it up and spend time with the kids. Um, and then, you know, if my friendships suffer, then it's kind of one of these things where, well, my friends that are, are supposed to be in my life will understand and the, the ones that aren't won't. And so, uh, that's kind of been a battle for, for me personally that I've had to struggle with a little bit, but I'm coming to terms with it and I'm pretty happy with the way things are now. And I'm curious about this just because you brought it up earlier when you said compound interest. So I don't ask this of everyone, but, um, you obviously seem to have a good relationship with money, but. Out of curiosity, in terms of whatever you want to share, how do you invest? Like, how do you think about it? Do you look at property? Do you invest in like the S&P 500? Like, what are your thoughts around that high level, whatever you want to talk about? Yeah, I mean, at, at a very high level, I think I do kind of what's conservatively best, S&P 500. I also have uh, a, a small percentage that I can go off and make side bets on my own in the public markets. And just with public markets in general, I think that Financial literacy also includes understanding like the balance sheet, the PL, forward facing growth, what companies, what like it's really, uh, I think, important to understand private market valuations and pub public market, market caps and valuations because you learn how they're all related with each other. And so, um, anyways, that's a little bit of a tangent, but um, you know, just we live in we live in very interesting times right now. So, obviously, you know, I have some, uh, some real estate. Um, as well, but now starting to get into crypto a little bit, especially with as an inflation hedge. But this is such a new world uh, for me that I'm trying to learn as much as possible. And so, um, you know, uh, I, I'm just diversified, which I think you have to be in today's world. Have you explored DeFi at all or just out of curiosity? 
no, not really, not really. And that's again, the, the DeFi is one of those things where there's just so much to learn. And uh, but I definitely want to uh, put more time into it. How about yourself? Yeah, I know. I took a couple of crash courses. Like I took a course and just to familiarize myself with it. There's just so much out there that's being produced all the time. So just figure yeah. out how to cut through the noise so I can just learn a few things. And just yeah. like you know, I, I'm a not a lazy investor, but I like to like let time do its thing. So I just found a couple of things where I could park a little bit of money. Yeah. Uh, not a lot because, you know, crypto is obviously very high risk, but just yeah. park some money and just let it compound over time and just check in, uh, you know, you know, maybe once a month or once every couple of months. But um, yeah, I mean, crypto is here to stay. And so it's one of these things where even though it's like highly volatile right now, I think that becoming more informed um, around, you know, just get. I think improving your knowledge around, well, what are these different coins? What are the foundations of these coins? What, you know, what things that are, are out there that are solving real problems? You know, there are so many new coins uh, coming on the market, so many new technologies that it, I think it just behooves all of us. And I speak for myself as well to take the time to learn it. I think that it, if we invest uh, intelligently now, uh, that we can set ourselves up really well in the future. And so, you know, it's something that I don't know um, a ton about it and I want to get more into, and that's one of my goals for uh, 2022. Um, but another thing that I forgot to mention is also obviously angel investing, um, because I think that um, that's my world. You know, like I, I, I understand the patterns. Um, I've made the mistakes. So when I see entrepreneurs that kind of have everything that they have like a, a sound um, value proposition, a sound business model, then, you know, making investments in them has, uh, has also been something that I've, I've explored. As you were kind of talking, the two things I'll just quickly add about crypto is I feel like people think it's not here to stay, but I think if you look at history of like anything that's technology wise, that's going to change things in a big way. Um, I look at, you know, the internet, for example, and mobile phones or like this mobile technology where I think it was I'm trying to think who I thought it was a Microsoft CEO, but somebody had said, you know, Oh, Steve Ballmer, I think it was, had said, you know, who's going to pay that much for like a, a mobile phone or like uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. the iPhone. That's yeah, right. The iPhone. And then like, this is like, you know, when I think iPhone was priced really high compared to other phones. And obviously we know the rest of that story. So I think yeah. history is going to repeat itself with crypto where you have this, you know, a lot of hype and then it's going to kind of die down and then it'll stabilize and it'll just kind of become entrenched. And then the second thing is something somebody said, and it was really powerful to me, which was, you know, as your knowledge in something increases over time, then, you know, you can, you know, when it comes to investing, you can put more into that. So for me at the beginning, I didn't know anything about crypto or DeFi. So I put very little into that, but right. by putting something in it, I had skin in the game, which forced me to learn about it. And as That's I learned right. more and more, I just started putting a little bit more and more. So um, I just feel like a lot of people are stuck in that. I'm not going to put anything. We're going to put everything, which I think yeah. you, know, you can, you can do things in a, in a safer way. Um, yeah. Well, yeah getting some upside. Yeah, just, just a couple percentage points of your, you know, investable uh, capital. I think just to kind of have some exposure to it is not necessarily a bad thing. And I would never discourage anyone uh, from not doing their diligence and, you know, learning about the coins that they're investing in or whatever it may be in that world. But it is definitely here to stay and it is going to be integrated kind of with everything. And it's something even at Xano, we think about, okay, well, how do we you know, kind of skate to where the puck is going and try to create solutions for people that are building in this Web3 universe. Um, how connected are you to like the Tamil community? I don't even know what it's like in, you know, in LA, like how would you describe it? Um, is it just, would you say the community you're connected to is just like immediate family and 
like friends or uh, yeah, maybe describe that. Money can be hard to come by, but here is a $100 opportunity for you. Join my free newsletter for free exclusive content and a free chance to win $100 when I hold special draws. Did I mention that it's free? Yeah, you know, I think that um, most of the community uh, within LA lives, they tend to live typically starting in uh, Lancaster or Sri Lancaster uh, and the surrounding areas, and then they eventually move uh, to LA. Most of the exposure uh, and connection that I've had with the Tamil community has, uh, to be honest, been just when I was younger with my parents as we go to different functions. And I've, I've obviously stayed in touch um, with friends as, as we've grown up and grown older. Um, but right now, I don't, um, you know, I don't stay as connected, to be honest, as I would like to. I think as I become a father, I think a lot about okay, well, what do I want to expose my kids to uh, with my background? What's important to me? And more and more, I find myself being like, you know what? It is actually pretty important that um, my my daughter and son understand the Chinese and, and uh, Tamil culture that I'm a part of. And how, how do I, I get that to them? And so, or how do I integrate that in, in part of their upbringing? So it's something that I think think about more. And I've, all, I've started actually watching... Um, Bharatanatyam dances with my daughter. Just I, I've always just been fascinated. I think it's a beautiful art form. I think there's a lot of discipline uh, that goes into it, just like any classical dance. Um, and I think it's a good segue into like you know just talking about the culture. And so she's she, she's super young, but um, we've like sat and watched some videos together, and she's like makes little hand movements. It's pretty cool. So um, I would say that um, you know not as connected as I'd like to be, but I'll probably get more. Um, uh, over time, especially as the kids grow older. What would you tell your, you know, if you had a chance to go in a time machine and talk to your 16-year-old self, what would you tell him? My 16-year-old self. Um, you know, this is a tough question. I know you sent, <laughs> said this earlier, but it's a, it's a tough question to answer. But I think that um, I probably would just say that things are going to be okay. Like that you're going to go through some hardships um, but they're all going to make you stronger. And I know that that's, that just sounds like such a, I don't know, like a textbook thing to say, but the reason why I wouldn't want to be more prescriptive is because all of the experiences that I went through in life, um, formed the person that I am today. And while I could go back and say like, learn about this, get ahead of this and invest in this company. And, you know, it's, um, nothing really matters more than the experiences that you have to shape you. And so I think it's, I would probably say it's not about, um, it's not about winning and losing. It's about trying uh, and learning and just try as many, take as many swings at bat as possible. And if you fail, it doesn't matter. You're going to learn something. And so that's probably what I would leave them with. Now, if you're looking forward in terms of your personal legacy, how would you want to be in a few sentences? Like, how would you want to be remembered by your friends and family? I would want to be remembered as uh, someone that always like helps people get to answers faster, to break down complex topics and and simplify them. Because I believe that if you're able to do that, um, that you you help people avoid the landmines that are so commonplace in life so they can face their own challenges. So there's just being an entrepreneur 
getting to where I've gotten uh, in life right now, there's so many lessons that I've learned that to be honest, it's like kind of unnecessary for people to learn. There are so many other challenges that they should face. Like, I think even if this engineering that we're talking about, like, does it make sense for someone to go through the trouble of like scaling and syntax? No, like they have bigger problems to work on. So how, if, if I can be remembered as someone that did that uh, at scale for a lot of people, then uh, I will be very happy. And that's a good way to segue into our final segment. It's a speed run. It's called Creator Confessions. It's going to be just a bunch of statements I say, and you just tell me the first answer that pops into mind. Okay. All right. Uh, favorite Tamil food? Uh, dosa. Something that scares you? Mm, something that scares me. Um, indifference. An insecurity that you have? Uh, insecurity. That I'm not as smart as people tell me I am. Favorite show you're watching? Uh, favorite show that I am watching right now. I know this is a speed round, but I'm just thinking through what shows I'm watching. Billions. A place you're itching to travel to after the pandemic is over? Australia. I feel like I know your answer to this one. Fellow Tamil creator you want to give a shout out to? Fellow Tamil creator. Um, well, it, it, I always give shout outs to my sister, but uh, Mr. I, uh, Sundar Pichai, like I actually worked with him pretty closely at Google oh, wow. and uh, in, inspirational man. I knew you were going to say your sister, but I didn't expect that answer. Okay. Uh, favorite childhood memory? Um, my favorite childhood memory is uh, traveling, traveling with my family to Florida, to Disney World. Something you like to do for fun outside of work. <laughs> this is going to sound so nerdy. I like going to Street Fighter competitions and watching them. Interesting. Uh, purchase you've made recently in the last couple of years that you splurged on, but you have zero regret about it. My MacBook M1. Uh, pet peeve of yours. Unreliability. If you knew that you were going to die tomorrow, a regret that you would have? None. Age you want to retire by? This is a hard question. Like fiscally, I'm never going to stop working and creating and helping people. Fiscally? I guess my definition of retirement is ownership of time. Do what you want when you want. So. Yeah, I would say um, ASAP. I mean, I'm, I'm 40 years old right now. I'd like to get there as soon as possible. So hopefully within the next five years. Celebrity whose life you'd want to experience for one day. Um, who would I want to, whose life would I really want to experience? I guess Elon Musk. I knew you were like the 20th person that is, Batman is a mark, like a marketing genius. Um, he is, absolutely. Uh, a, a favorite book or podcast that you've listened to recently that's had an impact on you? All in. Uh, a new belief, behavior, or habit that's improved your life? Meditation. It's not new though. A new one? um stretching and finally a piece of advice that you would give to your fellow aspiring tamil creators out there um so we already talked about the things that matter take time um which is one of my favorite phrases the other one is from jocko willink and that is discipline equals freedom and so i genuinely believe that you need to live a disciplined life to live a very happy successful and free life. And so um, the advice that I would give is stay consistent no matter what it is that you do, whether that be physically working out, whether it be your finances and investing, or whether it comes to your, uh, your business and growing it. I love that statement. Well, Prakash, I mean, I didn't know what to expect other than you were Sashi's amazing brother, but 
that was an amazing conversation. We talked about everything under the sun. So from crypto to like just life philosophy. So very thankful for you to kind of jump on the podcast and just make time to share this, you know, all your insights and experiences. I think people are going to really love it. Uh, if somebody wants to connect with you, maybe they want to pick your brain or just, you know, they found your story inspiring. What's the best way for them to uh, reach out to you? Yeah, probably Twitter. Um, I, I'm just at Prakasam at Twitter, P-R-A-K, awesome. Um, and yeah, just feel free to reach out to me anytime. I really appreciate you and everything that you're doing, kind of helping connect like the uh, Tamil diaspora of people and just kind of getting all of this information out there. I'd, I'd love uh, to ask you, um, how many episodes have you done now? How, how many conversations have you had? I've, I've released publicly as of today, 45, but I have like a 40. ton of others that I haven't like released yet. Um, yeah. So like a ton of conversations. That's I mean, do you feel like that this, like, Number one, why did you decide to embark on this journey? And number two, do you feel like you were accomplishing the goal after 45 conversations? Great questions. Um, that's very podcast. So, so uh, the, first answer, the first answer to your question was um, why I started this was I, I like having conversations with interesting people. I used to do it in person before COVID restricted that and me being a parent restricted my time. So being able to do this by with Zoom with people all over the world and still continuing on satisfying that curiosity they have around meeting interesting people. The second part of that or uh, connected to that is people used to always ask me questions about those conversations, but I'm a horrible storyteller, which I'm working on. But I figured what's the easiest way to share at scale interesting conversations because I'm a good, I feel like I'm a good question asker, asking questions, sorry, um, would be doing a podcast because I think all the technology and just the trend was you know, making it easy to start a podcast. So that's why I did it. And number two, in terms of the goal for the podcast, I didn't really have a goal, to be honest. I just really wanted to share interesting conversations and build this community of people that, you know, I could, you know, meet people like yourself that I, had, I didn't know much about and maybe build relationships moving forward or just connect you or other people to you that, you know, could be a mutual benefit for you both in the future. So just fostering this creation of community. And um, I'm a really a big fan of this article I read around creating serendipity. So mm -hmm. just, you know, putting out content is a great way to do that. So I just want to put these conversations out there and see what happens. Like I had a friend, my best friend, he's an actor. And the, the most recent podcast was his episode. And um, he told me after the podcast, like there's, he got a, he actually got a part in like a small independent film because of the podcast, because somebody listened to it. And then they kind of made the connection that he was Tamil because he's Indian Tamil. And for whatever reason, people don't connect it to um so i like just things like hearing things like that are amazing for me uh eventually yeah. i might do other things to monetize the podcast but i'm not in a rush for me right now it's yeah enjoying this journey of meeting interesting people and hopefully helping other people learn from your your journeys yeah that's amazing and uh really and i i think that you're definitely accomplishing that and i think you're a great interviewer and uh, it's been it's been a wonderful conversation. I have one more question, and that is, after all of these conversations that you've had, what is one thing that you know to be true that you've learned through these conversations? I think the simplest thing, if I were to share with somebody, and the commonality I hear from almost any guest is, um, like, don't don't overthink things. Just start small. Whether it's investing or starting an idea, I think people have this idea that. When they do something, it's got to be perfect. Don't be afraid. Don't be, be afraid to fail small. 
it's actually better you feel small than feel big. So like yeah. just do things in the background. You don't have to tell people, just experiment. So for me, I'm like learning how to create YouTube videos or like just put out content or like how does SEO work? I don't know that stuff, but I'm just learning slowly through YouTube and I'm running a series of experiments to see how well I know it. And just like you said, consistently do it over time. So uh, don't be afraid to don't be afraid to fail small. And number two, be consistent. Like you said, um, I love that phrase you said. I, I'm going to mess it up, but I think you know with discipline comes freedom, or you know you, you live an amazing life. Um, the reason I really uh, resonated with that was when I think of me and my wife, we're all about kind of okay. We have two like we have twins. We've never had kids before. How do yeah. we have some semblance of a life while having these two kids? So we're like. Let's focus on sleep because if we're well rested, we can be better parents. We could, you know, do other things we want to do. So we implemented like a sleep routine right from the beginning. There was a painful learning curve for three, four months, but we stuck with it. And like, you know, within like six months or sleeping relatively well. And that just kind of, you know, changed our lives in terms of how we viewed ourselves as parents and just, you know, how we dealt with each other. Um, and that just because of that thing that you mentioned, which is don't see structure and discipline as a bad thing. Think of it as a, a thing that will unlock a better life for you. So yeah. absolutely. Yeah. I love it. Great answer, my friend. Well, um, again, been an awesome conversation. I really appreciate you having me on. No, this is, I mean, I hope my other guests don't uh, hate me for this, but this is like so far what like, okay, I won't say my favorite podcast because I don't want that hate, but I would say it's one of my favorite podcasts in terms of, you know, the actual interview. So yeah. Awesome. Well, I, that, I'm very flattered that you would say that. Thank you very much. I, I've also really enjoyed it. And I'm so glad that Sashi connected us uh, together. Um, I just feel I can already tell. I don't know you very well, but we share a lot of the same values. And, and um, I can feel like good energy, good vibes. So I hope to meet you uh, in person one, one day and, uh, and hopefully buy a drink or something or we'll go for chai or we'll go for dosa. <laughs> <laughs>